Today we are in Luke chapter 9, in the first six verses. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we ask now that you would teach us the things that you want for us to learn. And the things by which this church might be edified and built up in the most holy faith. We ask that you would be our teacher today, that we would hear your voice mediated through the mere instrument of a human preacher. We ask that you would continue to shape us in the likeness of your Son. For his glory and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, throughout our study of Luke's gospel, we have seen the Lord Jesus tirelessly laboring in his public ministry throughout Galilee, preaching the gospel to every town and performing miracles and signs and wonders to authenticate that gospel message that he was preaching to every town. And thus far, it's been really a solo venture. I mean, of course, his disciples were there with him, but they were just there watching, spectating. But Jesus alone has had the authority and power vested in him. He is the only one able to heal all those diseases and cast out all those demons and do what no mere man could do. But here, as we turn to chapter 9, we see this sudden shift in Jesus' ministry in that he now confers that same authority upon others, namely his 12 apostles. And he commissions them to partake in the work that he alone has been doing up till now. Now, why? Well, why would Jesus suddenly delegate his work to his disciples? Well, it's because, you see, This was God's design and plan all along for his church to partake in the work of his kingdom. It was always God's plan to usher in his kingdom through his son, our King Jesus. But the continual advancement of his kingdom would be accomplished through his people, through the kingdom citizens as instruments of God's work. In other words, Jesus came to bring and to preach and accomplish the gospel, but, I mean, read through the New Testament. Jesus didn't take the gospel to the ends of the earth by himself. He wasn't going around doing all of that. Instead, he, he ascended back to the Father after his resurrection. But just before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, what does he say to his disciples? He says, you will be my witnesses, to the ends of the earth. So the gospel would be carried to all the world through his disciples, through his church. 
Now, of course, in a sense, Christ is so supreme and sovereign that he does personally attend every evangelistic effort and conversion by his spirit. We're not alone. But physically speaking, it is the church who has received her great commission from Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The church is called to carry out the kingdom work that Jesus began. And so what we see here in the sending out of the 12 apostles is a foretaste of the church's mission and ministry. Because, well, the the apostles are the foundation on which the church is built, Ephesians 2.20 tells us. And as Jesus sends the 12, he gives them these very specific instructions, which, because the apostles are the foundation of the church, these instructions are for us foundational principles for the ministry of the church. You see, the lessons derived here are pillars upon which our church, NBC, must be built. And these are the principles that we must be relentlessly committed to if we're going to be a church worth our salt in any way. And so the first principle here that we see is the centrality of preaching. That preaching is central. Look at verse 1. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out, for what? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, when we read these two verses, what probably jumps out at us is not the proclamation, but all of the other supernatural works that the apostles were commissioned to perform, namely the manifestation of divine signs and wonders, healing, casting out of all demons, not just some. But we have to understand that the miraculous works are are, are not meant to be the the primary task for for the apostles. Rather, these miracles were, were auxiliary to the main task of preaching because the question is, What were these miracles for? What was their purpose? Their purpose was to serve a confirmatory role. The purpose of these signs and wonders were to authenticate the message that they were preaching, just as it was for Jesus. Jesus' main mission was to go preach. And he says, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. Remember earlier in the chapters of Luke. He said, wow, who can forgive sins but God alone? He says, oh yeah? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk. The signs were confirming the divine authority with which Jesus was speaking the truth of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. And so you see, for the apostles in the same way, it was to show that the gospel they proclaimed was truly of divine origin. It was not a man-made idea. It's not a man-made religion. But evidenced by the divine power that accompanied the preaching, this was of divine origin. And this is why 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says that these wonders and, and mighty works, they are called the signs of a true apostle. These are apostolic signs. And there's a reason why they're called signs, because they're meant to point to what they are signifying. Again, the divine authenticity of the message. The miracles, you see, it it was like God notarizing what the apostles preached, giving his confirmation and attestation. And so as such, the apostles and their divinely bestowed ability to do miraculous works, 
It was not intended to be normative for the church today because, again, it was part of the foundation-laying stage. And if you know anything about building anything, how many times do you lay a foundation? Just once in the beginning. And everything else on top of that is the superstructure, which is the phase which we are in today as the church. I mean, it's simply not God's will for us today to divinely cure diseases and raise the dead and all the extraordinary things that Jesus and the apostles did. Look, if it were his will, we'd be doing them happily. I'd love doing that. But rather, we need to understand with a biblical frame of reference that, that rightly sees the signs and wonders as being unique for the nascent church age by God's design. Which means that the call of the church today is to continue to propagate the substance that the apostolic signs and wonders were confirming. That is the message of God's kingdom that is to be proclaimed. Preaching is central. Preaching is timeless. It is the message of the truth of God's kingdom. Now, lest we think that the apostles had the cool supernatural task of miracle working, and we today, we just have the lame, ordinary task of just delivering some information to the world, that couldn't be further from the truth. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers and forces of darkness. He makes it clear that the church is in a spiritual warfare and has been commissioned to engage in such battle. Now, if it is a spiritual war, the question is, what is God's appointed weapon for this warfare? What is the weapon he gives to us? It's not the signs and wonders. Rather, it's the unleashing of the truth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ooh, that sounds powerful. What is that? Is it raising the dead? Is it, is it healing miraculously the sick? No, it's verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is what Jesus sent them to do, isn't it? Here in verse 12 of Luke chapter 9, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. But here you see healing and miracles is the confirmation of the message, but the kingdom of God is the content of that message. Notice the parallel in verse 6. It says, they went everywhere preaching the gospel and healing. See, the kingdom of God is the gospel. It's the good news of God's kingdom come in Jesus Christ, the king who has come to pay for the sins of his people. This news is the weapon, Paul says. Giving people the knowledge of God, the truth of who he is through Jesus Christ the Son. You see, as extraordinary as the signs and wonders were, they were only ancillary to the substance of gospel truth that was being preached. Now, church, this tells us that there is supernatural potency whenever the gospel is preached because the truth of God is powerful. Don't think of it as any less. 
I mean, think about it. With one lie, with a single lie, the devil led the entire human race into eternal destruction. With a single lie, the entire cosmos was fractured into chaos and disorder. If one lie about God was so potent to do such a thing, how much more the truth about God, the truth that actually reveals and manifests His glory and majesty and authority. See, it's not just sharing factual information, but when we give the world the true knowledge of God, it is able to destroy strongholds and break down the chains of bondage to sin and bring healing into brokenness. And this is why James chapter 1.18 says that it is by the word of truth that God brings new regenerate life from the spiritually dead. The word of truth. The truth causes new life to be born. 2 Corinthians 4.6, God says, Let there be light into the darkness of the unregenerate heart as He shines the light of what? The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The living power of God is unleashed when His truth is heralded. You see, this is the bread and butter of supernatural ministry to which we've been called, proclaiming the gospel, not only from the pulpit, but for the whole congregation, every one of us, to engage in this task in our respective lives. Look, it's, just, it's not the pastor's job alone to tell everybody in the whole community about the gospel. It's not possible. But you see, the question for us is, do we believe that the gospel is the very power of God to save sinners? We don't need something to supplement the gospel to, to make it powerful. It is powerful in and of itself. You know, some of you may feel discouraged in evangelism because you feel that, especially in this day and age, my goodness, it really feels like an uphill battle, doesn't it? It doesn't help that as the years go by, society appears to grow increasingly incompatible with the Bible, intolerant of its message, and all these new hoops to jump through and new controversial issues that have to be addressed. And I mean, it feels like as soon as you begin talking about the gospel to somebody, you, you suddenly find yourself in a whole philosophical debate about the existence of God. And then a hundred more questions fly your way as you're bombarded with all these demands to explain how this all fits in with modern science and how this fits in with all the cultural progressivism and all the whatever philosophical objections they might have. I mean, it's just endless. And maybe you're discouraged. You feel ill-equipped. Well, let me encourage you with something that Spurgeon once said. When, when someone asked him about how to defend the Bible, he said, defend the Bible? I'd sooner defend a lion. You don't defend the Bible. You open its cage and let it roar. All you have to do is let the lion loose and it will defend itself. Man, what an encouragement that I, I need to be constantly reminded of. You know, it's so easy in this postmodern culture and all the political correctness to be overly concerned with all the explanations. Oh, but you know, that's not what I mean by this. Oh, that's not what I... Uh, no, of course, we, we should be always ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is within us. But 
There's a sense in which we could end up being always so timidly apologetic and defensive all the time that we forget the supernatural power of the truth of God, which we are called to positively, unashamedly proclaim with conviction and joy. It's the good news of God's kingdom come. That Jesus is king and he's manifested himself. And he invites outcasts into his kingdom because of what he has done. Look, in spite of this relativistic, antagonistic culture, and actually, all the more because of it, I think the church today needs to be less consumed with defending Christ and simply declare him to the world. Just preach the gospel and let the gospel do its work. You know, we need to unashamedly herald the truth of who he is. No, no sorries, just listen, this is the truth. The holy God and creator, the one who created you, came down to earth 2,000 years ago. And he fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy as foretold by God for centuries before. And he was crucified, dead, and buried for our sins. And he rose from the dead to show his victory over sin and death. And one day he is going to return to judge the living and the dead. But the good news is that anyone who confesses his sin and turns to him for forgiveness will be saved from their sin and enter his kingdom as citizens and as rightful children of God. This is the truth. No apologies. It's what it is. Come to Christ. You see, we have to positively preach this with joy, with certainty, and let the truth vindicate itself as it melts the hearts of unbelief and miraculously brings sinners to embrace Jesus as King. See, we have to believe that the gospel of God's kingdom, His reign, is indeed good news. We're not sorry to tell people that Jesus is King. This is the most wonderful truth. That He's come to save us and bring us back to Himself under His authority. And we have to believe that the gospel truth is the very power of the church. This message is what makes our gathering and assembly holy, set apart from the world vested with divine authority and power far beyond what we could imagine. Look, we may be, at the end of the day, a whole bunch of nobodies, mere jars of clay, fragile and frail. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belonging to God and not to us. And that's the next principle of ministry that we see Jesus giving in these specific instructions for the journey. It is the principle of being utterly devoted to and dependent on God. Verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Now why would Jesus give these interesting guidelines? Well, on the one hand, is to emphasize the urgency of the task. He's saying, make sure you pack light because I'm not sending you on a vacation. You're on a mission to win souls and be content with whatever lodging is provided to you. If anyone receives you into their home, just stay there for the duration of your time in that town. Don't be looking for better accommodations, a nicer swimming pool, a nicer high-rise penthouse. Just... Do the work, and once you're done with the work, move on to the next town. And in this, the lesson for us is this, that as those 
commissioned by God for his kingdom work as the church, we have to remember to not get too comfortable in this world. It doesn't mean that you can't go on vacations or enjoy trips. It doesn't mean that you can't appreciate different uh, luxuries of life as God blesses you with them. But you must be careful to not live for the luxuries of this world. Your life is not about squeezing out maximum enjoyment and pleasure for yourself before you die. You know, that's what the world promises is, is freedom and joy and happiness. But if you really think about it, that's a very pitiful and godless way to live. It's so aimless. It's, so, it's nihilistic. It's no different than how the unregenerate live. No, as, as members of God's kingdom, we're, we're living for so much more than this. We have so much greater of a joy that we live for that's bigger than us. And our lives must be about seeking His will being done in the context of our lives and His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus reminds His disciples, remember that you have been called to a great commission of the utmost urgency. You're living in spiritual wartime. And so be careful not to be complacent and fall into worldliness. That's one reason for these specific instructions. But the other reason, and perhaps more importantly, is to emphasize that this mission is something for which they must rely entirely on God to provide. Notice how Jesus sends them with not only light luggage, but really with empty hands. No food, no money to buy food or to pay for lodging. Uh, how are they going to survive? The basic necessity is how is it going to work? Solely by trusting in God's providence and His work of grace. That wherever they go, that the Lord will be the one to stir in the hearts of some to be receptive to their preaching and welcome them with hospitality. You see, Jesus was stripping the disciples of their self-sufficiency so as to teach them this ministry and kingdom work is not to be dependent on man's resources, on man's abilities, but the church's success and well-being. It's not contingent on our own prowess or ability to provide for ourselves, but solely on God. Now, brothers and sisters, what a comfort this is for us, especially here at NBC. I mean, look around. We're not hot stuff. I mean, we're, we're a small church. We even have to sing a cappella because Samantha's out of town. I mean, we're a very bare bones church. But as we stay faithful to the heralding of the gospel, and as we stay faithful to his word, Will not God be faithful to uphold us and bless our ministry? This is why I love our church. Because God knows we don't have much. We're not impressive. But oh, what a spiritually advantageous position we are in. You know, I confess to you on my worst days, I I forget this and I get tempted. Looking at ministry with, with worldly eyes, with worldly metrics, get anxious. But I'm so comforted and and reminded by Jesus' paradigm as to what is in His eyes an essential characteristic of a truly powerful ministry that does serious damage for God's kingdom. 
That is a ministry that is stripped of man's resources and have no choice but to be wholly reliant on God's provision and grace. And this is why perhaps the most vital ministry of our church is, believe it or not, our weekly prayer meetings. As we confess our insufficiencies and seek His supernatural provision and blessing for our little church. It's us saying, apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. I hope that more of you will join us on Wednesday nights as we pray together. That is the biggest labor we can do, prayer as a church. And I hope that in the years to come, as the Lord graciously blesses us with more resources, with more people in our midst, Lord willing, I hope and pray that we never forget to be a lowly, humble church utterly dependent on God's provision and empowerment to bear fruit for His kingdom. It's sad to say I've seen many, many churches fall off the cliff as they began to be blessed with more, with more resources, and grow in self-sufficiency. May that never be true of us. We're called to be faithful to Him and Him alone as we simply sow the gospel seed and He will be responsible for growing that gospel seed that is sown. And this is the final principle we see in the remaining instructions that we need to entrust the results to God. Verse 5, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. As Jesus said earlier, wherever you go, if that town receives you, then enter and stay there. But there will surely be many places that do not receive you, but reject you because of your message. And for those towns, once you walk out of the city limits, he says, shake the dust off your feet. And this was a symbolic gesture of, of disassociating oneself from their rejection of the gospel. So as to say, okay, I have nothing to do with this then. Listen, you answered to God. You know, we have a similar symbolic gesture in our day, but with our hands. You know, we say, okay, it's out of my hands. It's between you and God. And so Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. To testify that they rejected the gospel, and now they will have to answer to God. Now this tells us a couple things. First is that as believers, we all ought to be such vigilant evangelists that the people around us should not go before the gates of eternity unwarned. We should strive to be such passionate and faithful proclaimers of the gospel that we are able to shake the dust off our feet if anyone rejects the gospel because our conscience is clear. We deliver the message and they reject it. It's out of our hands. And may it be that if any soul should perish, that it would not be because we withheld the gospel from them when we had been given ample opportunity to do so. And secondly, as a church, as a ministry, we must remember that we are called to faithfulness and leave the outcome entirely to God. Jesus' instructions here, uh, they're, they're implicitly telling us, don't be so caught up with results. Your job 
is faithful proclamation. And it is the Holy Spirit's job alone to bring about regeneration according to divine sovereign will. So just remain locked in and focus on being faithful to the gospel mission. I mean, this is such a simple lesson. But you'd be surprised at how tempting it is for churches to stray from this instruction. And how so many problems that plague the church today stem from this basic deviation. You want to know why the American church is so spiritually pathetic and weak and filled with a whole bunch of unregenerate nominal Christians who have a false assurance of salvation? It's because far too many ministries have fallen into the temptation of outward appearances of ministry success. Filling the pews, growing, growing in resources and influence and publicity at whatever cost. Even at the cost of the integrity of the gospel. It's the temptation of, of doing what you can do to control and fabricate the semblance of a good outcome. And so you start focusing on increasing the entertainment value and the marketability of your church. You start softening the message to make it more palatable to a hostile world. You start teaching subtly man-centered theology. And pretty soon it blows over into a, a full, it's all about you. Life is all about you. God is here to make all of your wildest dreams come true. And then so everyone starts coming and coming because, wow, this is the hottest church in town. I mean, they must be doing something right to be able to attract all those people who didn't go to church before, right? Wrong. If it's at the cost of the integrity of the gospel, which it often is. Jesus had preached the gospel. And if they reject you for it, don't have a sob session. Just move on. Don't try to control the results. This doesn't mean be heartless. This doesn't mean be loveless. But it means entrust it all to God. Don't let that alter your faithfulness. Don't try to win the culture by becoming like the culture. No, do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12 says. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be anchored to the purity of the gospel. I mean, take, for instance, another example. Why do you think that the charismatic movement is so enticing? Why have so many churches gone down that path? In fact, there are many pastors and church leaders, some of whom I know personally, who were once faithful, passionate for the Word of God, passionate to see the gospel transform lives. They were once faithful, but they eventually led their congregations down this path and doctrinally off the cliff, enticed by all the sensational hysteria of the charismatic movement. Why? Well, what is it about, about it that's so alluring? Well, it's because that movement, with all of its music and its practices, it offers to ministers the instant gratification of a congregation that suddenly looks extremely spiritual and passionate on the outside. Because, well, I mean, look at all the ecstatic behavior and, and so many of these shy people who once were so quiet you couldn't even hear a single word out of their mouth. But now they're breaking out of their shell and singing at the top of their lungs for hours and hours and hours, chanting the same songs. I mean, they look really on fire for Jesus, don't they? That's the temptation. 
I've seen so many pastors with a sincere desire to be passionate for the Lord and wanting to share that passion and awaken their spiritually lifeless congregation. I've seen so many end up introducing this spiritual chaos to the flock because they so badly want to see their church be passionate for God. I get it. I I share that same desire. But you cannot let ungodly theology do that for you. It's all a sham. It damages churches. Like I can go on with more and more examples, but you see, so many issues stem from failing to remember that the results of ministry are never in our hands. The ends never justify the means. Like the basic biblical principle from Genesis to Revelation is God alone determines the ends. So you just be faithful with the means. The ends do not justify the means. Church, this is why here at NBC, we're not going to entice the community with innovative, impressive programs, cool trends, cultural relevance, or what have you. We're just going to be a simple church. Just preach the word of God from the pulpit and be faithful to grow in holiness and love for God, love for one another and bring the gospel to those around us. And that's it. And we just trust that God will take care of the rest. And it's His church. It's His kingdom. And we've only been given the privilege of partaking in His kingdom work so we We better do it on His terms. You see, we ought to take heed to Jesus' words here, which reveal His will and His blueprint for the ministry of His church. You know, as we're reminded here in this passage, I'm just so glad that He has not left us alone. But as Jesus would later say in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, not just go and make disciples and do all these things, But what does he say? Behold, I am with you till the end of the age. And church, may this energize us to be faithful to Christ and his gospel as a church. May we seek to yield every aspect of our lives to his will and to the purpose of his kingdom. May God be pleased to be glorified in our church. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for the wonder of your gospel that saves sinners like us and brings us into your kingdom and now gives us the privilege of going out into the harvest field and laboring for the gospel. Lord, we ask that by your grace, you would keep us at NBC, keep our church faithful, faithful in your eyes alone, living and doing all these things seeking to please you and only you, that our whole lives might be about living for the audience of one. For your glory alone we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.